Thank you, Richard. Well, I'm, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm a very confusing person because I do have an American accent, but I'm still British. Um, I was born in Northern Ireland, and we immigrated to America when I was about two years old. And uh, we lived all across the United States and Canada because my father was very restless and was constantly looking for the end of the rainbow. Of course, he never found it, but I did. Um, but uh, uh, I... Um, I went back and lived in Ireland when I was 14, went to school there. Uh, I came over to England to uh, A-level Crammer when I was 17 and did two A-levels and ran a petrol station outside of Oxford for a year and then went back to the States. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and then later on, I met Jesus uh, in a very, very unusual and powerful way and uh, eventually um, uh, went to church, and that's where I met LaDonna who was raised in the church. Her parents were missionaries, and <clears throat> they, um, they operated first in Australia, where LaDonna spent her first six years, and then in Los Angeles, and then they came to England uh, in, uh, in the 1960s. And <clears throat> after we leave here, we're going down to Dorset, where LaDonna spent her teenage years uh, to meet very, very old friends down there. And <clears throat> the way LaDonna and I met is that we were at this uh, very large and exceptional church called Church on the Way in, uh, in Los Angeles area. <coughs> I've got one here. Thanks. And uh, LaDonna was on the team ministering to the um, young adults. And I was a young adult. I think I was, we were 27, weren't we? Because we're the same age. And... Um, and uh, she, she would try to get these, these adults talking to one another, which can be a bit difficult. And uh, so she would always say, I'm LaDonna, blah, blah, blah. Um, I used to live in England. And I said, oh, really? Oh, I used to live in England. Where did you live in England? And six months later, we were married. And then God called us to England, which was a big surprise to both of us because we really love England. We have always had a great love for this country. And, uh, and it was a very big surprise for us that God called us here. And uh, we worked a lot with uh, the Anglican and Catholic churches, the Charismatic Renewal in the, uh, in the early 80s. And then uh, the Lord decided that he wanted us to pastor. And we moved over to the city where we, uh, with her mother, uh, her parents really started uh, the church that Richard and Louise uh, talk about. Now, uh, You'd expect me to tell some stories on Richard and Louise, wouldn't you? Well, <clears throat> the, um, the thing about Richard and Louise is that before they, there was any, any hint of them becoming a couple, they were already working together. And we used to do, we used to do these uh, concerts in the parks. And, and Richard would organize this thing called Christian Jazz. Um, and it was wonderful. And, you know, it, I don't know if you've heard this, but there's other people doing Christian jazz now. Yeah, they are. But I, 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 I do think we were the first. And there were lots of musicians uh, at our church, but then there were other musicians from City Temple that were going to other churches and, and all of that. So he would gather them all together, and they would come up with this wonderful, light, cheerful music. And uh, we would do these open-air parks, and Louise organized things to the children. 
and she went to a, uh, uh, a plumbing store and she got them to take a 20-foot-long plastic sewer pipe that had never been used, obviously, and had them cut it in half. And she filled it with ice cream. And every child that came was given a spoon. And they could, they could share and eat the ice cream together. So, oh, you like that? You, you, you like that idea, do you? Does that, does that sound good? Yeah? So they were already working together before they came, became a couple. And uh, <laughs> I can't remember when it became obvious, but it was pretty late on, I think, uh, in our time there, wasn't it? Was it? It was. It was. It was after our time. I think so. Just trying to slow them down a bit. But uh, the the story that stands out about Louise is um, there was a, a a group that went out one evening. And with them was uh, a girl that we had just led to the Lord. Um, she had a very, very rough background. And uh, uh, she'd gotten in trouble. She was from South Africa. She'd come up to London, gotten herself in more trouble. And I actually was visiting an Anglican uh, pastor friend of mine in uh, South London who got a call saying, we've got this girl. We, she has to move out of the area. She's gotten in trouble with the family that she was with. And uh, we don't know what to do with her. And I knew, I knew that Louise was living with Lucy and Rebecca. Um, and I knew that if I just called them and say, I've got this girl and she needs a place to stay, that they would immediately say, yes, of course. And uh, so I said to the, to the vicar, I said, we'll, we'll take her. And so I went around and I picked up this girl. Anyway, they went out one night and... Um, uh, this uh, this girl um, got into a fit of despair, and they were down on London Bridge, or rear, right near London Bridge. Now, London Bridge, this is an important part of the story. London Bridge has a has one of those big, heavy rails they all the bridges do, but unlike some of the other bridges, it actually has a ledge on the other side, uh, on the outside of the bridge. It's about ten inches wide. It's really it's not a big ledge, but it's there. Anyway, this girl broke away from the group, and, and mind you, she's, she was a big girl, probably 250 pounds. I mean, she was a big girl, okay? And she ran over and crawled over the rail to throw herself into the river. And Louise went running after her, crawled over the rail without a moment's hesitation, wrapped, put one hand, one hand on the rail, wrapped herself around the big girl, and got her hand on the other rail and held her there until the police came because the other girls couldn't get her over the, back over the rail themselves. They weren't strong enough to get her way over. And there's Louise, who weighs 50 pounds or maybe 90, is holding this very, very large young woman and keeping her from throwing herself in the river. And that is Louise and Richard. And, uh, huh? <laughs> but um, it's uh, you know it's 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 very special to be here. It's very special to be a part of this, to see this wonderful community uh, that uh, has gathered around them, and it's such a precious thing to have. It's it's one of the things that that frustrates me when when I do evangelism is that people have so many prejudices. They've they've seen so much nonsense on television and in the movies about church. 
that they just think it's a complete waste of time and why would anybody want to bother and they miss the joy of being a part of a community like this. And, and they're deprived. It's, they're terribly deprived of something that's so special. We talk a lot about heaven, and, uh, and of course we should, and that's great. But when I became a Christian, just the fact that Jesus was in my life now, and I was no longer alone, it didn't matter whether there was a heaven or not. I, I, when, when I died, I could cease to exist, and it wouldn't matter. It was well worth uh, coming to know Jesus just for this lifetime. Heaven's a bonus, as far as I'm concerned. And what a wonderful bonus it is. But the sheer joy of knowing Jesus now, feeling his love, feeling his, his, um, his steadfastness with us, the fact that he will never leave us or forsake us, that's so much better than anything we could ever find in the world. So much better than anything we could encounter. And people, people sometimes say to me, well, you know, when I go up the mountains, that's my church. No, it's not. That's you enjoying something that you enjoy. It's, it feeds your flesh. It doesn't feed your spirit. And the people say, the pub, well, that's my church. Well, you, you might get some good fellowship there, but of course it may be through a haze. And uh, people say all kinds of things, but they're missing how wonderful this is. And how wonderful you are. And, and just, just what a delight it is. Well, that was not anywhere near part of my sermon. But uh, that's okay, because um, I, I love red herrings. I, I follow red herrings with great passion. And, uh, and so you might hear one or two of those as I go along. I want to look first into John chapter 20. Uh, very briefly. Um, this is, uh, 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 I think, just such an amazing story. Oh, by the way, if you're taking notes or want to remember the title of this sermon, it's There's Always More of God. So, in John chapter 20, verse 19 through 22, and I'll read that. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, you can imagine what a great moment that would be in anyone's life to have Jesus suddenly appear and walk into them and say, Hello, lads, how are you today? You know, what, what an awesome moment. What an incredible moment. And, and then he breathes on them and, and they receive the spirit that he had been living in through his life with them, they'd experienced some of it when they had gone out and preached the gospel and prayed for the sick and saw people uh, healed. But now they receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the seal of our salvation. And what a wonderful and joyful thing. What more could anyone want? As I was just saying about, about becoming a Christian, it was so marvelous having Jesus in my life that I wasn't even worried about heaven. Because it's so wonderful to know Jesus. If there's a heaven as well, my goodness, that's fantastic. So I think that's the kind of position that the disciples were in. Well, this is terrific. Uh, we're, we're not alone. He told us that he would not leave us as orphans. And this is what he meant, that he wouldn't leave us as orphans. And isn't that just great? I love it. I can live with this. 
And then a little bit while later, he takes them to the seashore, and he stands there, and they're not sure what's going to go on, and you know, where, 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 what are we doing next, and, and all of that. There must have been a great sense of anticipation. And he says to them, "Well, I'm leaving now," and they're going, "No, no, no! You just got here, you know. Don't, don't leave yet." He says, "Well, I'm, I'm leaving now, um, but I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you're empowered on high." And they're going, how can there be more? How can there be more? We've already got you. How can there be more? And yet on that, uh, in the uh, uh, beginning of the uh, second chapter of Acts, the day of Pentecost, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven and a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so there's more. There's an old expression in, in, in America. Uh, you've probably heard it, you know, when a salesman is talking to you and he's trying to convince you, and he says, and there's more. And, and this is the truth of, of the Christian life. There's always more. Because it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't stop, stop there. There is always more to be had from God. And what a, what a wonderful thing that is. What an amazing thing that is. People sometimes, well, I'll, I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, you know, uh, I tried Christianity for a while, but, you know, uh, after a while I just, um, I, just, I just lost that sense of connection. The only reason to lose a sense of connection is that you're not making any effort to, to know the person that has saved you. There's no other reason for that. Because Jesus says, I'll never leave you forsaken. He hasn't gone anywhere. But we do. We wander around all over the place. You know, this whole thing about uh, people being like sheep. I've seen what sheep do. When I lived in Northern Ireland when I was, uh, when I was 14, I remember walking uh, along, a, there's, a, uh, there's a cliff walk that goes in between Port Stewart and, and uh, Port Rush, two towns right on the on northern coast of Northern Ireland. And uh, it's a wonderful walk, a cliff walk. And there's often sheep in the area. And... Um, as my brother and I, I had a younger brother, and as we were walking along, there was a shepherd, and he signaled us to stop because there were sheep, and they had two dogs uh, uh, with the sheep. And the uh, on the cliff, and I could see where we were standing, that just below the cliff, about maybe 15 feet down, uh, four sheep had gone down the cliff to this little patch of grass. And now here they've got, behind them, Acres and acres of beautiful grass all around them, but there's this small patch of grass that's very hard to get to, that's right over the cliff, and that's where these four sheep wandered down, and they're down there, and they're in danger of falling off into the ocean, which was a good hundred feet down. And the, we stood there and watched, and the shepherds uh, uh, directed their dogs, and the dogs went down another side to drive the sheep back up. And three sheep drove back up, and one of them went, just jumped right over the side to his death. And there's always some of us that do that. There's just always we're like sheep. There's times when we will just plummet right off of a cliff without even thinking, think, oh, everyone's going that way. I'm going to go this way. And down we go. And we wonder, well, where's God? You know? We don't want to do that. We want to stay there with him, don't we? 
We don't want to go over the cliff. When I was young, I specialized in going over the cliff. I was, I was, I was a master at it. I was always going in the wrong direction until I found the Lord. Always going in the wrong direction. I was actually, when I was 24 when I met Jesus, I was driving my car on the Los Angeles freeway, drinking a beer, because I drank beer all the time. Uh, you ever had beer pancakes? The bubbles really pop. They just, <coughs> boom! So I don't recommend it. Um, but uh, beer was my constant companion. And uh, I'd come to a point in my life, I had just barely survived the bout of cancer, which had ended my first marriage, and I became a part-time father with my little girl, which was just devastating to have that experience. And um, I cried out to Jesus, because I'd, I'd been to, I was, I was um, baptized as an infant at the Anglican Church, and we weren't a great church-going family, but we used to show up there once in a while. So I had a basic idea of who Jesus was. And I cried out to Jesus and asked him to kill me, because I didn't want my life anymore. Uh, but I phrased it in just the right way for him. I said, Jesus, I don't want my life anymore. You take it. And that's just the invitation that he loves to receive. And so I had this amazing born-again experience as I was driving my car. And Jesus was driving, not me, because everything went black. I couldn't see where I was going. And it, I, it actually caused me a moment of panic, because I didn't mind if I died, but I was concerned about my two-year-old daughter. And Jesus spoke to me for the very first time. And he said, don't worry, I've got this. And I was like that for several seconds, maybe minutes. I, who knows how long? I don't know. And then uh, when my vision cleared, the world was physically brighter. I felt this tremendous surge of peace and joy in my heart. Uh, and as I was enjoying that, and, and, I, and Jesus was speaking to me and said, you know, you're a very sick man, lots of different ways. Uh, but I'm going to heal you gradually, and we're going to get to know each other. And I thought, all right, that's great. That sounds really good. And then I became aware of the beer in my lap, and I thought, oh, no, God's going to take my beer. And I meant that. That was a moment of panic. And then I discovered his love, because he said to me, don't worry, we'll take care of that later. Wow. I, I don't have to give up my beer to know Jesus. That's amazing. It's like a double plus, you know? And later on, a few years later, he did completely deliver me from alcoholism in an instant. And uh, I still celebrate the fact, 36 years later, that I wake up sober on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And uh, it still feels really good to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, really very happy about that. So what more of there is, uh, what more of there is God? Well, let's look at three things where we can find more of God. We can seek his hand. And what does that represent? Well, his hand represents his power and his authority. His hand represents the way that we can work with him. We join our hands in working with his hand. The hand represents his gifts. Because he just hands them out, doesn't he? They're free. He, uh, his power, his authority, his healing, wisdom, knowledge, foresight. These are all things that he simply hands out freely. And there's a verse in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 11 that I want to read, which is so representative of God's hand. 
And it reads, Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of Rezin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is outstretched still. And that's the beauty of knowing Jesus. His hand is always outstretched to us, uh, wanting to gift us, wanting to give things to us, being enormously generous with all that he is, and after all, he's the creator of the universe, so that's rather a lot. And it's also reached out for when we're stumbling, from when we're wandering over the cliff instead of coming back up with all the other sheep, when we hurt ourselves uh, by falling down a cliff of, of despair or wantonness or whatever it might be, his hand is always there, reached out to us to bring us back. It reminds me of a story of a man who, who uh, stumbled over a cliff and he's hanging on to one, one small bush and he's worried to death that this bush is just never going to hold his weight. And so he's crying out for help, crying out for help. And he hears this voice from above saying, I'll help you. Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. What do I do? And the voice says, let go. And he pauses and says, is there anybody else up there? You see, we can, we can let go and fall into his hands. Because he's always done us. We can go through some really, really tough times in life. I know Richard and Louise have been through some really tough times, and you know that. But so were LaDonna and I. Both of our sons were born visually handicapped. And uh, there were many operations and emergency treatments and all kinds of things were always going on while we were pastoring the church. And it was, it was pretty difficult. And we didn't always share everything because most of our church was so young. Uh, we didn't always share everything that was going on because they were so young themselves. They were, you know, like 20, 21, things like that. And, you know, and you know when you're 20 and 21, your emotional age is really more like 14, but, you know, we won't go into that. And so we know what that's like. And, and when, when I heard what was going on with them, it kind of shocked me. And I wondered what, what the Lord had done in preparing them with what we had been through for what they were going to go through. Just to let you know, our older son, although he is legally blind, he has some vision, but he's considered legally blind. Um, he's started off as a linguist and learned to speak French, Spanish, Russian, and he studied biblical Greek. He and I studied that together. Uh, then he went on to get a master's degree in international politics and economics and he works for Boeing in secret government contact, contracts. He's the associate pastor of the Foursquare Church that, uh, that he's a member of in Maryland, not far from Washington, D.C. The younger son is an artist. He sees a lot better, but he was born with no fingers on one hand, uh, which was quite difficult for, for him. But uh, he's a, uh, a computer guy, and he design, build, designs and builds web pages. And uh, so, so we have one that's a scholar and one that's an artist. And, uh, you know, it's one of the fun things about raising children is you never know exactly what direction they're going to go in. You can try and shape them, but you also have to let them discover who they are and what they're good at. And, uh, and, and that's one of the joys of, of parenthood, isn't it? 
What we gain by seeking God's hand, of course, is his power, his authority, his insight, his forgiveness, and his power to forgive, which is one of the most powerful things in our lives. Because when we can forgive, when we have the power to forgive, we cut off so much damage that is done to our souls. That's, there's so much healing in the power of forgiveness. I, I don't think it gets uh, enough billing, as it were, uh, in the Christian life. But to be able to forgive those that harm us. I, I think of uh, um, Corey Ten Boom. Uh, I, I don't know if you, you know who that is. She was Dutch. Was she Dutch? And uh, so you know the story. She was put in a, uh, a concentration camp by the Nazis, uh, was horribly treated, and uh, she came out of that with a radiant faith. And uh, she used to preach uh, all around Europe. And uh, one time when she was Germany, one of the guards that had mistreated her and her sister came forward for salvation. And she had the great challenge of having to forgive him in order to... Uh, lead him to Jesus. And it was a tremendous challenge to her, as you, you might imagine. Quite an incredible thing. Forgiveness is tremendously powerful. I'm going to tell another story. You might raise your hands on this if you remember it. If you don't remember it, well, we'll discuss that later. Um, <coughs> uh, my mother-in-law, who was uh, a very well-known preacher, particularly here in England, her name was Jean Darnell, uh, she was speaking at a meeting uh, down on the south coast somewhere, can't remember where, and she made an altar call, and people were coming uh, for, uh, for coming up for salvation and for prayer. <clears throat> and there was one young woman who was very, very distressed. And she um, she uh, uh, was finding it very, she wanted to receive Jesus, but there was some kind of barrier. And <clears throat> so my mother-in-law talked to her for a while, and there was a, an unforgiveness in her heart that was very strong. Well, as it turned out, when she was 16, her father had very seriously mistreated her. And uh, she ran from the family home <clears throat> and never went back. Uh, she stayed with friends on the other side of their village. And uh, <clears throat> if she saw her father, she'd run the other way. And <clears throat> he became hugely uh, repentant. He was brokenhearted over how horribly he had treated his daughter. And he actually, if he saw her in the marketplace, he would literally crawl on his hands and knees across the street uh, to beg for her forgiveness, but she wouldn't give it to him. And he eventually lost his mind and ended up in a, uh, in a hospital. And um, <clears throat> as, as my mother ministered to this woman and finally got her to begin the process of completely forgiving her father and the damage that he had done to her, uh, she received Christ as Savior. My mother-in-law found out later that in that very moment, that man in hospital recovered his sanity. That very moment. Not because she called him, but because the Spirit of God was working. And he recovered his sanity. That's how powerful forgiveness is. We can seek his face. One of my favorite scriptures is from Exodus 33. And I've got my piece of paper. Where did that one come from? I think that was of a previous notation. Exodus 33, verses 11 through 15. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And the Lord said to him, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, let us not come up from here. I really love that scripture. That is such a beautiful scripture. The whole intent of Moses' heart is, no matter what happens, no matter, because he was going through a very, very difficult time, no matter what happens, I want to be where God's presence is. No matter where that is. We might have great ambitions in our life. We might uh, see ourselves as uh, uh, perhaps ministering to thousands or leading a great army or becoming a great politician. But there's no point in anything unless God's presence is there, leading us his way. We seek his face. To seek his face, it says here, um, in another place, it says, uh, when, uh, when uh, uh, Miriam and uh, Aaron were giving Moses a hard time, God came down to rebuke them, and he says, you know, to talk to you two, I have to do it through a dream or a prophecy. But Moses is my friend. I speak to him face to face. It's a completely different level. But, of course, that's the level that we're invited to have with Jesus, to speak to him face to face as a friend. He's our friend. He's our best friend. I say to people, you know, if you don't have a regular prayer time, if you're not aware of the presence of God with you all the time, you're like a person walking down the street with your very breast band, someone you love and who loves you, and completely ignoring them. You don't do that, do you? When you're walking down the street with someone who, who loves you and that you love, you talk to them. That's the whole idea of praying without ceasing, is that we're aware of his presence with us, and we're interacting with him on a moment-to-moment basis. We're not necessarily saying, well, Lord, should I cook this piece of fruit, or should I pick this piece of fruit, or what should we have for dinner tonight? It's not necessarily like that. It's just an awareness that he's always with us, and we're engaged in, in, in uh, his purposes in everything that we do. When we do that, we will have more divine encounters with people. When we're in the tube, or on the street, or, or wherever we might be going, we'll experience different situations where we can release something of God's love to someone who is completely unaware of it uh, uh, existing. And I could tell you lots of stories about that, but I don't want to keep you here all day. Well, I do want to keep you all all day, but I won't keep you here all day. Um, but I know there's many instances when I've been walking down the street uh, where, where God has led me into a situation. For instance, um, when we lived in Kennington in South London, when we were pastoring Bridgeway, I was walking down the street, and I saw a little boy coming my way. He was maybe about eight years old, and he was holding his right arm, and it was obvious that his arm, his forearm was broken. It was bent in a rather unnatural way, and he was hurrying home. And, uh, and so I stopped and, and waited for him, 
And I said to him, you know, something like, it looks like you hurt, hurt your arm. Uh, are, are you going home? He says, yeah. He says, well, I'll just walk with you to make sh sure that you get home okay. And so I walked with him, and, and obviously he's in a lot of pain, and he's very focused on getting back to his, his parents. And so I said to him, I said, you know, I'm a Christian, and I want to pray for you uh, that, that uh, God uh, eases the pain in your arm, because that must really hurt. He said, yeah, all right. He had no term of reference for that. And so I put my hand over him. You never touch someone else's children. I'm sure you know that. You just don't, you just don't do that. Um, so I put my hand over his head, and I asked Jesus to heal his arm. And he jumped. And he went, what was that? That was Jesus. That was his Holy Spirit touching him. And he was just amazed. You know, he, and I remember, I didn't touch him. It was the Holy Spirit that touched him. And he felt a change in his arm. He felt something happen. Uh, and then I, I got him to his door, and then I walked away. And, and I, I've encountered lots of incidences like that where God has used me to, because I'm walking with Jesus. He's my best friend. I'm always, I'm always with him. He is always with me. And I want to always be available to interact with people with his presence with me. That even matters when you're driving, especially somebody cuts you off. Remember, you're driving with Jesus. I bless you in Jesus' name! Something like that. In John 15, 15, when Jesus was uh, talking to his disciples before the crucifixion, he, he, he made this wonderful statement. He said, I no longer call you servants, but friends, if you do as I command you. If you do as I command you. But we're called friends of God. What a wonderful thing. Moses was a friend of God. Abraham was a friend of God. We are all friends of God. What a joyful and a wonderful thing that is. We are his friends. We gain so much confidence in that. If you don't have confidence in yourself, and, and a lot of us don't, I don't, if we don't have a lot of confidence in ourselves or our, our personal abilities, certainly we have a great deal of confidence that Jesus is with us and that he is guiding us, that he is, he is walking with us, that he's taking us in the right direction, and he's there to listen to when temptation comes and he will give us the strength to get out of it if we choose to get out of it, which we don't always do, but it's always a good idea. Because he never leaves us or forsakes us. This confidence, this propels our desire to be obedient to God. How do we obey God? We obey God by falling in love with God. We obey God by loving him, by recognizing his love for us. When we seek God's face, he's looking back at us personally. We're not just a face in the crown. We're not just a person who's filling a chair in church on Sunday morning. We are an individual person that he is relating to individually. The world often thinks, oh, you become a Christian, you just become like all the others. Not at all true, is it? You become more of who you are, who you were meant to be before the world damaged you so much that, that you, your personality got warped or damaged or, or hidden. And he brings all of that out. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. 
And as we learn to love him and learn to desire to be obedient and be tender-hearted and focused on him, then we seek his heart. And what is his heart? His heart is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how much he loves the world. That everything in the universe would change to bring us into relationship with the Father. Someone once asked me years ago, years and years ago, uh, if Jesus was already God before he came to earth, okay, so he had a rough time when he was here, but really, what was his sacrifice? Because he went back up to heaven. What was his sacrifice? And it really puzzled me, and I had to think on it a long time. But the, 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 the key is in the verse when it says um, there was a great cloud covered over the crucifixion. There was a darkness that came. And Jesus said those, those words, La, uh, uh, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I didn't know I was going to have musical accompaniment. That's so generous. Oh, you must have heard me. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the point where, for the first time in eternity, Jesus was no longer connected to God. He was a man on his own, with no connection with God, which he had had for eternity, and which he had had for his whole earthly life. That would be horrible, a horrible uh, sacrifice. That was the most painful thing of the cross, was to be separated from the Father. I'm sure he, he really wanted to die and get it over with at that point. Far worse than anything he'd experienced was being cut off from his heavenly Father. We seek his heart, 1 John 2, 2, because he's the propitiation for all the world, for the whole world, for everyone. And we all know that, don't we? We all know that. This helps us to have perspective when times are hard, when we're going things that are painful, that we, we wish God would take away from us, um, but we often have to go through it helps us a perspective that it, it doesn't change his love for us. It doesn't change his presence with us. And focusing on that presence is what gives us strength and the ability to grow through those difficulties that we always will encounter in life. I was talking to a very, very dear friend of ours that we are reacquainted with, someone we spent a lot of time with uh, in our first years uh, in England. Uh, she's an older woman. And uh, she has two daughters, and one of them died of breast cancer a few years ago. And really, there's, there's few things more horrible in the world than to outlive a child. Just a really, really dreadful thing. And a few days before her daughter died, the Lord spoke a scripture to, to our friend. And it sustained her through her daughter's death and through her daughter's funeral. It sustained her. Didn't mean she didn't have grief, uh, that she wasn't sorrowful, that she, she didn't cry, but she didn't collapse because the Lord's Spirit had sustained her through his word and had given her the strength to endure uh, that terrible tragedy. And, and here she was these few years later and could tell me about it and say how wonderful it was that God had given her that ability to sustain that loss and keep her eyes on Jesus. 
But of course, that's what Jesus does. We seek his heart because his heart is for us, it's for everyone. And we have to keep well acquainted with that and keep tender-hearted towards God so we can be tender-hearted towards ourselves and forgiving ourselves as well as tender-hearted and forgiving towards others. And there's always someone to forgive for something. Always. And they don't deserve it. But we have to give it to them anyway. There's a chap in, uh, in America around in the early 1900s. His name was George Washington Carver. He was a very small man. He was an African-American. His parents had, uh, had been slaves and, of course, were set free uh, in the Civil War in 1865. And George Washington Carver was a, a true and powerful Christian. He was uh, a brilliant man. He was a scientist, at, certainly at a time when uh, an African-American would have had a hard time uh, uh, working in science. But he was a brilliant scientist. And remember, he was born, I think he was actually born in slavery. And then when he was very small, uh, slavery ended and his, his family was set free. And uh, he was constantly looking at the universe through God's eyes and wanting, uh, wanting to know things. But he kept his eyes on Jesus. And there's this wonderful story of, of George Washington Carver. He was walking along uh, the seashore, and he was talking to God. And he called God Daddy God. And God referred to him as a little man. And um, he was walking along, and it was nighttime. And he said, Daddy God, why are them all those stars? And God said, little man, that question is too big for you. And God, he walked along some more and he said, Daddy God, why did you make the ocean so large? And Daddy God said, little man, that question's just too big for you. So he walked on a little bit further and he said, Daddy God, why did you make the peanut? And Daddy God said, little man, that question is just right for you. And therefore, we got peanut butter. He's the one that invented peanut butter. But what else did he do? In the southern United States, which had relied on cotton, that's why they needed the slaves to, to pick the cotton and process the cotton. Cotton, the cotton plant, ruins the soil. It sucks all the energy out of the soil. And uh, after generations of cotton plants, the soil in the southern United States, where they kept slaves, was ruined. They couldn't plant much of anything else. And what George Washington Carver discovered in this conversation with God was that the peanut plant releases nitrogen into the soil and it rebuilds the soil after it's been drained by other plants. And he, God also showed him all kinds of different uses for the peanut, peanut oil, peanut butter, all sorts of products that came out of that. This man, born in slavery, revolutionized the entire industry of the southern United States. That is the power of forgiveness. And it's also the power of one little man who kept his eyes on Jesus. Kept his eyes on Jesus. Who sought his hand, who sought his face, who sought his heart, and without hesitation, 
He introduced something that revolutionized the industry of the southern United States. When he took it to Congress and he spoke in Congress, the congressmen did not take him seriously. They chatted among themselves. They basically were ignoring his presentation until some of the southern senators went, wait a minute, I think he's got something there. And they stood up and they hushed everyone else and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait, we, we need to listen to this man. And then they listened to him and then they started to enact the things that God had shown them. What an amazing story of redemption, of forgiveness, and of the power of God to change the destiny of people, regardless of how terrible they might have been to other people. That's the love of God. There's always more of God. There's always more of God. But we have to seek it. Because God gave us free will. We can jump over the cliff as an individual sheep, or we can jump back into the fields where we belong. We have free will. We can do it uh, any way we want. When we're young, uh, we, 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 want, we have got tremendous energy. We want to go out and explore life. We want to go to the dances and the clubs, and we want to do other things and, and find the excitement of life. We better make sure we take Jesus with us so we don't go too far, so we listen to his spirit, and we don't go to places where he's going, oh, no, don't, don't go in there. You really don't want to be there. We want to make sure we listen so that we can continue walking with him because the riches of what he gives us outweighs anything that we could ever discover in the world. No matter what our circumstances in life are, there's always more of God that we can find. And he is always there. It's like that scripture in Isaiah. My hand is outstretched still. It's always there for us. And it's a hand we need to grasp. It's a hand we need to hang on to. It's a hand that will, you know, when you take someone's hand, when you shake someone's hand, what do you do? Do you look at the hand? No, you look at the face. You look at the face. Grasping his hand is the way to his face. When you see his face, that's the way to his heart. Because his love for us beams out of his gaze upon us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I give you thanks for this, this lovely group of people. I bless them in your name, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I just rejoice uh, over uh, what, what is gathered around Richard and Louise and, and their children. I'm so excited by this and so blessed to be here this morning. I pray, Lord God, as this, as this church continues to grow, continue to advance in your kingdom, uh, that these projects that they have about indebtedness and this wonderful food bank, uh, which is such a great service to the community. I pray that they would uh, continue to grow in that, that that tonnage would increase as you increase uh, uh, this community, uh, that they would increase and, and excel in their generosity and, uh, and that they would overcome obstacles. That you're not, there's obstacles coming your way that you're not even aware of right now, but it's your generosity that's going to overcome those barriers uh, that are going to come against you. It's your generosity that, that uh, people are going to say, no, no, you're wrong about those people. They fed us when we were hungry, and they didn't ask for anything in return. That's, a, that's, a, that's for a time coming. But it's your generosity that's, that's going to overcome the criticism and the attacks 
uh, upon upon your church. I pray for uh, your unity with the other churches in the community, that that would continue to grow, that uh, unity is uh, uh, among the different uh, church groups is so important uh, that we each share our own perspective of walking with Jesus. And I give you thanks for these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.